0: Hello and welcome to our third episode of the Circular Economy Playbook, the podcast which shares real-world stories on circular matters that are reshaping London and the world. I'm Ali Moore, I'm from the London Waste and Recycling Board and I'm here with Wayne, as ever. Hello. Hello, the boomiest yet. Well done. Um, We're going to try something different this time. Um, Slightly different format, so I'd be really interested to hear what you have to say about it. We're looking at the built environment and construction sector today, which is one of the biggest producers of waste in London. The last figures that we have for the total amount of waste that we produce in London are 16.5 million tonnes a year, 9.6 million of which are construction, demolition or excavation waste. That's quite a lot, isn't it, Wayne?
1: Well, yes, of course it is, yes. And this is an odd one for us, because as a London Waste and Recycling Board, we're really interested in municipal waste, so waste that is household or similar. But I guess it's oft forgotten that that represents less than half of the total waste produced in London, which is this construction, uh, demolition, excavation waste. And that waste in itself will vary according to the amount of construction and demolition that's happening in the city mm. and that obviously relates to the amount of economic growth that's happening and so what we we can really try and do here what what we need to do is decouple you love to hear this word decouple economic growth from waste now what we're about to talk about it yeah. really goes to this question quite a lot um, do we retain or rebuild
0: okay so given that we're a massive city. Full of people living here, working here, travelling in and out of here. We've got all of this building infrastructure and how do we make it work for us? Environmentally and in terms of circular economy, what does that mean?
1: There are lots of issues to unpick here. And those issues will be different between the Northern Hemisphere cities and the Southern Hemisphere cities. Uh, in London, for example, we're projected to grow by something like 70,000 people each year. And according to the London plan, at least, that will mean just to meet the demand for new housing, we need to build 66,000 new homes each year. Wow. Along with space for, for jobs, for people to, yeah. to, to, to employ these people. So there's a big commercial need as well. Now, in total, around the globe to meet the demands of uh, the expanding population globally and expanding middle class something like 60% of the infrastructure that we will have in 2050 has yet to be built blimey right so that's quite, i mean that's that kind of mind blowing that means that there's a massive opportunity to get this right and also to get it completely wrong yeah
0: does that mean that that 60% that is not yet built is that over and above is that all stuff that's new that's over and above, or does it involve? And this probably, this speaks directly to what we're about to do. Does that involve knocking down some of the forty percent and rebuilding it?
1: Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I think that mostly is um, is is envisaged to be new stuff okay. to accommodate. The rapid growth in the emerging economies in Asia okay. and India and South America. So, okay,
0: in a city like London, the growth that we're talking about, we've got loads of buildings already where every inch is packed full of buildings. Yes, yeah, so, so we are going to have to start thinking about things like refit. Yeah.
1: Here's an interesting example on my train journey to work, there's a multi story car park that's just been knocked down, and I assume it will make space for um, housing. Now, that car park was probably originally, I say originally, but probably a bomb site. And before that, it would have been dense warehousing because it's right on the banks of the Thames near Taint Modern. So over its period of life, it will have changed uses. Some of that use was because it was bombed out, mm. some of that change of use, and lots of those bomb sites became car parks. Now those car parks in central London have a massive premium yeah. and they're being used for housing, so these things are being knocked down. So what's happening to the construction waste, the the, yeah. the demolition waste that's being produced, well, I guess... Mm that's being managed, it's fairly inert. But this stuff is concrete. It's got lots of embedded um,
0: embedded
1: carbon in. Yeah, there's opportunities here to use some of this or all of this material for other building material that probably at the moment, probably, isn't being uh, exploited fully. I'm I'm pretty sure of that. And if we look around our city, a lot of the stuff around the city that is embedded in current buildings could be utilised for the development of new buildings. Now, the question is, um, can we retrofit existing buildings?
0: You can't retrofit offices into a car park, can you?
1: You can't or retrofit... Can you? You, well, I don't know. I doubt it. I guess there are lots of questions here around... Most people in in London will live in apartments. They'll live in, yeah. uh, they'll live in flats. Or flats, those as we that,
0: call them in England. Those that don't
1: <laughs> will live in Edwardian housing that was created during the tube expansion boom that happened around about the early part of the 20th century, I guess, which will have very different characteristics in terms of energy efficiency than housing that's built today. But we'll need active heating and there'll be no cooling, that'll be Mm. passive cooling. Mm. So the debate that we're about to listen to touches upon those issues in the London Waste and Recycling Board's circular economy route map we talk about this and we have a diagram that we borrowed from David Cheshire. And that diagram has a hierarchy of what to do with buildings and it has retain at its core. Right. But when we're building new, build flexibly. So a circular economy building would be a modular building, a flexible building, a building designed to last or designed to be modular. So
0: So you can take it apart and use the It changes
1: over time. Yeah. Yes. So think of the the development in uh, 2012 Olympic Games in London. Yeah. And uh, most of that uh, development on the Olympic site, in fact, all of it was designed with legacy in mind. So a second use. So the Olympic Athletes Village, this is very traditional, becomes housing. But the stadium was designed for a second use. Lots of the facilities were designed to be modular and they changed. And I think one of the problems at the time was nobody knew what to do with stuff once they disassembled it. So, you know, that was quite an interesting problem. But nevertheless, the Olympic Park was kind of ahead of its time before we'd even started to think in this term circular economy. It was designed with a second purpose in mind. It was designed to be flexible, modular and to be disassembled.
0: But that was partly at the time to do with getting community buy-in, I suppose, and, and providing the community with resources beyond the life uh, of...
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I also seem place. to remember it It felt part of the age of let's not spend loads of money here. It exactly. was, you know, It was being designed after the crash in 2008. Exactly.
0: Well, circular economy is, is nothing if not resource efficient. So, Absolutely. So this is the new format that we're trialling for this episode. We have a couple of people in a room discussing refit versus knockdown and
2: rebuilds. Hello, I'm Emma McKenna, and I'm a business advisor at London Waste and Recycling Board. I work on Advanced London, our circular economy business support program that's dedicated to SMEs and startups, and I look after our built environment portfolio. So I'm really excited to be here moderating our built environment debate today on refit versus rebuild. I'm also joined by my colleague, James Close, who is head of low-carbon circular economy programs. Hello. And Jilly Hobbs, circular economy lead, at BRE. Hello. So built environment is a really key sector for us at Elwhorp and in London, particularly because over the next four years, we'll be implementing a Horizon 2020 project focused on circular construction in regenerative cities, also known as circuit, and BRE is one of our local London partners that's going to be involved in the project over the next four years. The project will also be partnered with other European cities and regions, including Copenhagen, Hamburg and Helsinki. And the aim of this project is to increase regenerative capacity in the four cities and to reduce the yearly consumption of virgin raw material by 20% in new built environments and to show cost savings of 15%. The built environment sector is one that we know that really needs to change. And there's particularly a lot of noise on retrofit and rebuild at the moment. So we wanted to bring together two experts that really know this topic super well to explore and discuss and debate both sides of the argument. So how I'll run today is James will be leading on the argument for refit and Jilly will be leading on the argument for rebuild. So James, we're going to kick off with you.
3: Well, I think there's a couple of things that are worth putting on the table as we start this conversation. The first is that in London, there's about 17 million tonnes of waste that's produced per annum, of which 9 million tonnes is construction waste. So that's a huge amount of waste coming from construction. And of course, a lot of that is from demolition and other materials that come out of a new build where materials are often wasted. So I would argue that refit's a better option because you have a much greater chance of reducing the amount of construction waste. And of course, a lot of this construction waste goes to landfill. Some of it's recycled, but all of it has a very high element of embedded carbon within it. So if you can design a really good refit approach like, for example, the one we've done here in the LWARP offices where we've adopted circular principles for the re and used a lot of really innovative new materials, you can significantly reduce the amount of waste that goes into landfill or indeed even into recycling. And much of the construction waste that goes into recycling is turned into aggregate, which is obviously a quite energy-intensive process in its own right. So I think there's also a couple of different ways to think about this. I mean, some are commercial buildings and some are residential buildings. And if you look at the amount of building that's going on in London, you see new buildings coming up all over the place. And of course, that's a result of buildings being knocked down. I'm sure Gilly will talk about this. I mean, It does give an opportunity to rebuild with uh, net zero carbon buildings, which um, is a great opportunity to innovate. Uh, but quite often you can actually retrofit uh, to give a lot of those benefits in the commercial sector. The residential sector is also very interesting. I speak as somebody who's tried to do an eco-refit on our house, which was originally built in 1847. Uh, so it's very old and it was actually really quite difficult to build as much energy efficiency into it as we wanted. So I would also argue that Intelligent refit is the key. So you have to think about uh, how best to get energy efficiency and also what the appropriate renewable technologies might be.
4: Yeah, well, so um, obviously very interesting, and I agree with quite a lot of the points in terms of you why know, well, it's a good idea to refit. But also I think the built environment is always going to evolve and change, and the requirements for the built environment will change as well. And quite often at BRE, we talk about whole life building performance, And James quite rightly talked about energy, so what's the operational energy impact versus the embodied carbon impact. And if you look at that over the whole life, so the whole life carbon balance could actually lead you to conclude that it may be better to take a very inefficient asset down and replace it with something that's much more efficient. So I think that's one example where it would warrant having a rebuild because you've undertook that calculation. You understand that actually in this situation, it's the best option. And these things are always very context-specific. They're quite often, particularly in places like London, the reason why things are being rebuilt isn't necessarily because a whole life carbon assessment has been undertaken. It's because you can actually extract more value from that piece of land because you're taking something down and you're replacing it with something that's a higher quality commercial space, for example. Basically, you can create more for your money, essentially, on the same land footprint. But then there are other aspects of building performance that are equally critical. So, for example... how buildings affect people within them, either because they're working in them or they're living in them. So some buildings could actually be unhealthy for people to stay in. So in that context, if you can't retrofit to make them healthier places, you can't improve the ventilation or quality of air, or things like we've had in the past, sick building syndrome, for example. If there are really good health reasons to you know, to start again, then again, I would say that that's a good example of where you might want to do a rebuild. And I think also the built environment that we will need in the future is likely to change. So at the moment, we may be, you know, we're still constructing um, physical retail space. But in the future, it's quite likely we won't need to have so much retail space. So there is a way around that. And this is part of the circuit project, which is to look for to design for disassembling and adaptability, which would actually make it either easier to disassemble um, a building and reuse uh, a kit of parts. So actually, in that context, it it shouldn't be such a big deal to take an asset down and then reutilize it elsewhere. Unfortunately, we don't really have that in terms of the built environment today, so existing assets are unlikely to have been designed with that in mind. So it's much more of that, I would say, that whole-life performance consideration that should dictate... Whether you go down the refit route or the rebuild route.
2: Yes, I think that's really, really great arguments, Sarah Jelly, particularly around the current build and stock maybe not being designed for what our future needs are going to be, and those are definitely evolving all of the time.
3: Well, I think there's some really important points that Jilly makes. I think the first one around life cycle assessment is is important. I think we lack data to help us make those decisions really effectively. And I think that would be something that we could look to to sort of help us decide when refit is better than rebuild. But in the absence of that data, should you have a presumption that refitting is going to be better? I don't know. I think the other thing I'd just reflect on a little bit is we're just coming up to 2020. And most of the building that we're going to put up are going to last well beyond 2050. We're going to have to be at net zero if we're going to hit the one and a half degrees ambition that the Paris Agreement has. So whether you're doing rebuild or refit, you really have to be quite ambitious about the nature of the built environment. It needs to be sort of fundamentally different from the way it is today. And that's really quite challenging in somewhere like London. I think also the circuit programme is going to give us some really interesting ways of thinking about this. And I think, you know, when we always talk about the circular economy, we try to force ourselves to think about systems So what is the objective that we have in terms of creating really great accommodation that's fit for purpose and is going to sustain for the long term? And how do we build the design to enable that to happen? And what does that mean in terms of the planning, the construction, the demolition, or as Gilly says, the modularity in terms of the way in which we move some of these things around? And how do we optimize materials use for that as well? So, what kind of materials can we use that give us the best kind of refit so that we have the optimum built environment for the future? But I suspect there's more we agree on than disagree on uh, in this conversation, Jay.
4: Well, I mean, at risk of agreeing completely with James, I mean, for me, I actually do think that if there's like a hierarchy of, of circular economy, then reusing the asset, you know, given all the various caveats of, whole our performance, is, is definitely what should be looked at first. But I'd also argue that there are circumstances where it isn't necessarily always the best way to, to go. And I also say that there could be an issue in terms of driving innovation. Let's say the London we look at today looks nothing like the London of 300, 400 years ago because those buildings have changed, there's new techniques, new materials, just new requirements have evolved over that time. And I would expect that to happen in the future, and there could be. For example, I was at this event yesterday that was all about future innovation in the built environment, particularly in housing, and there was somebody that was creating building materials out of mushrooms, effectively. And I'm not sure how those would fit in with a pre-existing built environment. You know, is there a scope to include those in existing buildings? Or is that like a whole new facet of innovation, new and exciting built environment that could be developed, that should be developed, and then gives much more towards this whole concept of regenerative and dynamic built environment? I think maybe those are two things we're talking about. One's regenerative, and the other's sort of dynamic, where you do have aspects of the built environment, particularly in places like London, that have to sort of keep evolving and changing. So I, I would say there isn't a sort of right or wrong answer. I think it's just having the best mix and the best outcome for a development or a city or an individual asset. And it's really
3: interesting, isn't it? You look at London's iconic buildings, and they range from the ones that have been there since you know, the 11th century, like the Tower of London, right the way through to the new Wembley Stadium. Um, and they've adapted and developed over time. I think what's really important is that you think about the uh, long-term potential of, of buildings, because they're such an important part of the city's fabric. And an old city like London has so much uh, dynamism to it in terms mm-hmm. of the old and the new. And I think really taking innovation to the next level as well. And integrating the old and the new is really a very important part of building a built environment that's going to sustain us through to the end of the century. And that kind of long-term thinking is critical to the sort of planning and construction work that we're talking about at the moment
2: yeah for sure I suppose the architecture of every city is almost kind of its cultural dna and one of my favorite things about walking through the city of London is that you can be walking through and you've got the cheese grater here and the gherkin there but you can have all these old kind of churches that are intermixed throughout that and you know some of the oldest pubs in London, are kind of based right in the middle of this, and it's really, really cool. it's exciting to see kind of that mix of old and new.
3: I, I think there is a there is a real accommodation here about finding the right approach for the right circumstances, and I think that we probably need to deal with some quite significant challenges as well. So, are you better off uh, refurbishing a house that was originally built 150 years ago, or knocking it down and building a passive house? And is the constraint of a conservation area? something that really is valid in terms of uh, building this uh, new environment for the future. Um, I think the excitement of innovation around all of this uh, has great potential as well and I think you were referring to the building materials made out of mushrooms which is uh, one of our Advanced London and Accelerator businesses that called Biome and you know they've got great potential, it's so exciting to see uh, the way in which we're bringing Uh, new types of technology that are both sustainable and also uh, high quality and um, create new business models of the future that are going to drive the circular economy and enable us to live in a more sustainable way.
2: Absolutely. Leading on from that example, one of the things to mention is the room that we're sitting in right now, as James mentioned earlier, we did retrofit our office and the room we're sitting in was once one large meeting room and now it's been split into two. And the wall behind us is actually a wall that's been made from breath of board or breath of plaster that's actually made from hemp. So it's a different way of thinking about different biomaterials to create new construction materials that have been used in an older building, but for kind of future purposes.
4: So I think we, we probably agree on these various issues anyway, so just trying to bring some new stuff into the mix <laughs> for how, somehow. Um, as a country, as a, as a city, we are producing waste, whether we like it or not, and actually new construction products and materials are, are also quite a good um, market. Potentially for some of these other byproducts from other sectors as well as within its own sector. So I suppose if we stayed where we are and we didn't actually build new stuff, then what would be the market for many of the sort of waste materials that are being created? So I think that's, that's one point. We're not suggesting you should just build loads of new stuff so we've got markets. But I think there's a definite supply and demand issue that I don't think we've really got our head around. There's still a lot of new material going into the built environment at the same time that we're creating a lot of waste, which is either being downcycled and some of it is going for landfill still. So there's lots of scope to actually optimise that resource use, you know, to make that better, essentially. And also, we don't really know what the future holds, I don't think, in terms of, you know, we have an ageing population, so that's an additional facet of do we have the right built environment to address the future needs? In all likelihood, you know, we're not going to need as much road space in the city, so you can quite easily see 10, 15 years, then... All this space outside the window that we're looking at that is devoted to cars and parking will become available. So, you know, then that's a good opportunity to maybe rethink from a regeneration perspective. Actually, you know, this whole area could be much better for the people in it, for people working in it. But in order to do that, we probably do have to demolish some buildings in order to realise that vision of this new space for people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you can actually see it from the window, but just a little bit further down, they've actually locked off a road and take away car parking to create a space for, I suppose, local office workers to go and have their lunch, which is really, really great, because we're actually beginning to see that um, already starting to happen. So I think there's been really compelling arguments from both sides. I think there's no one solution that fits all, and it's really thinking about projects from the very beginning, thinking about what the purpose is, the materials that you're using to actually create a build and a retrofit one, how it actually operates, how efficient it might be, and then kind of at the end of its life, how those materials are also recovered so we can really embrace the circular economy and drive that forward so we can achieve things like net zero by 2050. So i just like to thank both of you for joining us today. And it's good to see that this debate hasn't hopefully ruined our working relationship for the next four years um, on the Horizon 2020 project. Yeah, we're really looking forward to hopefully hearing further opinions. Opinions from you the listeners as well on both sides of the argument too but thank you so much james and thank you so much jilly. Thank, you. Pleasure,
4: thank
2: you. so that was
0: james and jilly talking about refit versus rebuild and it seems to me as though the position that they reached was that actually it's complicated and that every case is different and that they need to be judged on their merits But in every case, whenever you're judging, that you have to be thinking with the long view in mind and that as long as we're thinking about the long term and not the short term, then we're likely to make the right decisions on a case-by-case basis. Was that your take from that?
1: Well, I think, yes, I think that's right. I was struck by Gilly talking about, look at the whole life, look at things like air quality and safety. You know, you've got to take those things into account. If a building is fit for purpose, then why would you knock it down? The question is, are buildings fit for purpose that are, I don't know, single skin? active heating required. They are passively cooled, of course, but I guess mm. as climate change increases, are people going to be incentivized to go and buy ad hoc cooling systems, you know, and mm. and how does that work in retrofitting old buildings? So all of these things have to be taken into account. I was interested in the idea of the conservation area. Our rules that we implemented back in, you know, the 1960s, are they now kind of getting in the way of our ability to retrofit our world, to make it climate safe. Mm. Now, we don't have the answers for that because you don't want to be knocking down a range of beautiful old buildings and then replacing them with buildings that have less kind of emotional value. But at the same time, we've got to take into account what they're going to do for the environment. Uh, Sadiq Khan talks about good growth. What does he mean by that? I think he's talking about making London uh, an equitable place where housing Mm. is of good quality, a green place, a place where there's a mix of, uh, of parks and greenland and commons, um and where we aspire to be a zero carbon city.
0: Yeah, the, one of the most interesting bits for me was when Jelly was talking about the removal of, you know, the need for roads and what that frees up in terms of, you know, creative thinking around our urban space and that was a, a really interesting thing and presumably that ties in with this whole, you know, good growth equitable transition. Well, this is fascinating,
1: uh, isn't it? You know, if you think about cities in the future, and I know we talked in the last episode about the C40 Cities report on the future of urban consumption in a one point five degrees C world. Mm. That report talks about no private transport.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, so in Absolutely. order to in order to so I mean that's a massive opportunity yeah. for us to re envision and recreate cities to be much more people friendly. Because mm. at the moment, as we know, cities are made for for transport. They're made for cars. Yeah. but if they're made for people with that in mind that opens up not just uh, a range of possibilities but acres of space yeah just think of all the space we give over to roads if that space was given over to people if it was greened or used yeah. for for bike transport you know that's yeah. a kind of
0: as long as it's not built on that's the only slight concern isn't it or
1: well persons, we yeah. we we you know the again the london plan talks about the compact city—it uh, talks about um, densification, but in a good way. So mm. making a dense houses livable houses, you know. Mm. So all of those concepts are taken into account, and I think the circular economy has something to say about that because you can densify by sharing, yeah, sharing spaces. You know, if, for example, there were more shared laundry spaces like we see in New York, or mm. um, that's a really good point, or uh, a library of things mm. in every. In every new housing development, so you didn't need so much storage space to, to store yeah. your drill or, or your oh, tools, you know, whatever amazing. it is. Yeah. So we can start to think about circular economy principles in relation to yeah. um, in relation to new developments.
0: Okay, so in our office, yeah, we have done something. Obviously, this is not a new development, but we did a fit out of our office and it was we did it as a a refit of the space in the most circular way that we could possibly think of, didn't we?
1: Yeah, well, we took those principles that are in that diagram that's in our circular economy route map and we tried to utilise that in our refit. Mm. So whilst we did refit, we did it in the most sympathetic way. We retained stuff. So if you come to our office, you'll see there's a whole bank of carpet here that's been retained. We used stuff that had been reclaimed from other buildings. So we've got wooden flooring that was recovered. And in the building itself, we had a kitchen that we needed to move. So we moved that kitchen we didn't throw it out we used recycled products where we could so we've used recycled pet and recycled yogurt pots throughout in terms of plastic for our tabletops and doors and we've used recycled products in our carpets and on on our walls as well actually so and mm. all of the furniture is refurbished so I'm sure that not everyone could go to the extent that we did but you can take bits that we did and, mm. and apply those principles to all refits and all buildings yeah. retaining what's what's still fit for purpose not throwing stuff out or using the stuff that's already in your building as a material bank for your refit or your new building
0: absolutely good well that was an interesting an interesting episode so thank you for listening So we'll let you know when the next one is coming out. Obviously, it's on all the usual platforms and we'll let you know on Twitter and LinkedIn that it's available. Um, Thank you for listening. Give us a like, give us a share. And uh, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, could you please rate us on your favourite podcast platform? Rate it,
1: yes. We need ratings and feedback. We do need ratings and feedback. Yeah, let us have some questions. If you've got ideas for topics... that you'd like us to cover or people you'd like us to talk to.
0: Or indeed solutions to some of the huge problems that we discuss.
1: Then we'd love to hear your opinions and your questions. Fantastic.
0: Thank you very much. See you next time.